Welcome to 2016. This is the Religious Studies Project. Brought to you in association with the BASR, as always, and from this year, the NAASR, the North American Association for the Study of Religions, who join us as a sponsor this year. I will introduce you again to my co-host as ever, Mr. Christopher Cotter. Hello, and you've just been hearing from David Robertson, and this is year five, David. Year five. uh, That's staggering. Um, If we were a child, we would be going to school. Yeah, and and maybe you'll notice that sort of maturity in the in the podcast this year, um, as we, or maybe the conformity that comes from um, going to school and learning um, other people's bad habits, or the weariness of churning this out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) On the topic of education, um, this is one of my interviews that I did with um, Dominic Corey Wright of the British Association for the Study of Religions. Well, he's a and of uh, Oxford Brookes University. He's the BASR's teaching and learning officer. And we spoke about um, teaching and learning in contemporary religious studies, which is something the RSP sees itself, we see ourselves as contributing to in, in a small way. Indeed, and it's going to be something of a theme over the uh, the coming uh, term, I guess. Uh, but more about that in a week or two. Um, but for now, I'm going to pass over to Chris and Dominic. As we career forward into the 21st century in a context where more and more students have access to higher education, where technology advances at an exponential rate, and where the logics of neoliberalism and management seemingly creep further into every aspect of everyday life, critical reflection about the role of academics and teaching has never been more necessary. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dominic Coyright of Oxford Brookes University in the UK to discuss current developments in higher education pedagogy the challenges and opportunities that these present for religious studies, and some practical examples from Dominic's own experience. Dominic Coyright is Principal Lecturer for Quality Assurance, Enhancement and Validations, and Course Coordinator for Religion and Theology at Oxford Brookes. Alongside other research interests, including alternative spiritualities and new religious movements, Dominic has a strong research focus on teaching and learning in higher education, and on pedagogy in the study of religions, he is teaching and learning representative on the executive committees of both the British Association for the Study of Religions and TRS UK. Particularly relevant publications include a co-edited issue of the BASR's journal Discus on teaching and learning in 2013, including his own article, Landscape of Learning and Teaching in Religion and Theology, Perspectives and Mechanisms for Complex Learning, Program Health and Pedagogical Wellbeing and a chapter entitled Complex Learning and the World Religions Paradigm, Teaching Religion in a Shifting Subject Landscape, in a certain forthcoming edited volume by myself and David Robertson. Um, But before we get started, there's one thing left for me to say, and that's, Dominic, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thank you very much. I'm uh, very grateful for the opportunity to talk about my work a little bit and uh, to add to RSP. I think it's a great project and want to add to it. Yes, and Dominic's been one of our strongest supporters <laughs> since the since the beginning. So we're glad to finally have you here. Um, as we are just about to start the BASR twenty fifteen conference. Um, so there's a lot for us to fit in here. But I was thinking, if we could just begin with uh, before we talk about pedagogy and religious studies, mm. uh, if you would be just give us a, a quite broad brushstrokes overview of you know what 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 is the landscape of higher education, yes. learning in the 21st century. I mean, it's it's no longer just acceptable for, you know, 
come to this lecture, hear lecture of parroting information, absorb, regurgitate. You've now got a degree. Yes, you know, exactly. There's, there, there has been some massive changes, seismic changes in pedagogy and higher education, which are still going on. Uh, there's some major challenges in terms of teaching and learning in higher education, which are yet to be faced. Uh, and there are some major challenges in our subject area, religious studies. We're quite a young subject. First department was set up in 1967, hmm. uh, which is actually my birth date. But uh, so we're, we're less than 50 years old as a subject area. Uh, and we've got some uh, some mountains to climb to persuade the wider audience, that's the student audience, but also some of our academic management colleagues, that our subject area is worthwhile supporting. Mm. And even at this very moment, as you well know, of course, there are departments across the UK that are under a lot of pressure to even survive. And even my own subject, unfortunately, was closed to recruitment last year because of low student numbers. Mm. So uh, uh, there are some some major challenges in our area. And there are some major challenges in teaching and learning in higher education because we've got a different model. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this in various articles, but uh, the model of students as consumers is changing the attitude of students in the way that they come to university and the purposes of study. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, some of the assumptions about intrinsic interests, mm-hmm. uh, they remain. Uh, there are still some students that have come onto my course and other courses that have been interested in the study of religions, either from a secular standpoint, they're not religious, or because they are religious. But there is a huge emphasis on employability, mm-hmm. a huge emphasis on a kind of instrumental outcomes. And unfortunately, uh, our study area doesn't have the reputation of other contiguous humanities like philosophy or history, mm-hmm. where people know that they're going to get interviews and get jobs because those are recognised degrees. Mm. So, so there's that sort of, yeah, there's that marketization that's right, context. Yeah. Um, there's also quite a and this is not just religious studies, that there's a sort of a real focus on assessing teaching and assessing impact and all that. What's that kind of... Yes, that's a very interesting uh, development. Uh, there's a there's an idea out uh, the HEA de- developing and discussing at the moment about a teaching excellence framework whereby universities are going to be judged not only on the quality of their research, like the REF, but there's going to be a TEF. That's going to be very difficult uh, to measure, we have uh, at the moment a very blunt tool in the NSS as a way of measuring student satisfaction of teaching and learning. Um, you need to have a sophisticated and subtle tool to measure teaching quality. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will be very problematic amongst a lot of academics because I have been fighting a large number of colleagues who are, fighting, who are interested in pedagogy to raise the profile of pedagogic research and the significance of pedagogy in uh, programme development. Hmm. Yeah, because there has been a sort of stereotype of the academic as I just want to get on with my own research. Teaching is something that has to happen. That's right, yep. And that's not... (laughs) That's not the picture. That's not what most of us are employed for. Actually, that, that is a stereotype because I have found few, if any, colleagues who don't love teaching. Mm-hmm. They love teaching, but what they tend to do is compartmentalise. They love teaching their block, their module, their section, and quite often are not interested in the overview of maybe the meta-reflection that they, they, they should be trying to get to the students in terms of students understanding their own learning. They should have the same meta-reflection on their own teaching. 
Mm, there has been a development in the last 15 years. When I started teaching in higher education in 2000, a number of universities, Oxford Brooks was one of them, had specific departments that taught higher education teaching and learning, but it wasn't a requirement. But mm. in the last 15 years, that is now a requirement at some version of a PCTH year, postgraduate higher education qualif- qualification, is now essential for most academics. Mm. And I think that's a very positive thing. Absolutely. Um, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of religious studies, yeah. then um, th- this kind of qualification, you know, mm. what, what's going to be being... I'm not 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 yes. not necessarily in in the, <clears throat> but as as I said in the introduction, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just standing up and lecturing. You know, so, what what are some of the pedagogical insights yes. that are, are <clears throat> trying to impart to higher well, education? Well, yes, uh, this is uh, actually. I mean, I've I've written about what I call complex learning, which is uh, a, a huge shift from. I, th- I think that there is a, an assumption that the primary mode of teaching is dialectic, which is Socratic. Mm. It's thousands of years old. Uh, Either uh, dialectic between uh, an academic and a student or a lecture Mm -hmm. seminar. But students don't work like that now. Uh, Students have got multiple inputs and their sole academic delivering a certain amount of information is just one of those inputs. Most of their inputs are technological. Most of their inputs are electronic. They are they are surfing the net. They are searching academic resources as well as popular resources. They're interacting via Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp and whatever other. They are engaged in academic discussions, mm-hmm. but we haven't got a way of, at the moment, of tracing that, of recognising it, of controlling it. And this has been one of the great problems for academic teaching and new media. How do we control the quality? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's yet to be resolved Mm. That's something that I work on with my students in my classes, and maybe we'll mm. to that as well. Yeah, so we, we will get to that. Mm. Um, but religious studies, yeah. um, although we don't necessarily want to reify it as a particularly difficult subject mm. to, to teach, or with, but are there are there particular challenges associated with that? And, and that you know, they they could be um, more broad than just religious studies, but um, yes. Uh, yes, the, the problem for religious studies since its inception is that it is a discipline without a discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, As it was constructed, it was always multimodal, and in actual fact a large number of the academics, even people who are involved in BASR, come from other disciplines where there is a recognised disciplinary identity. So we have anthropologists and historians and linguists There are study of religion scholars, and I consider myself one of them. That's how I was trained. I did my master's at Bristol with Ursula King and my PhD there, and I consider myself a study of religionist. But my first degree was in intellectual history. Mm. And even in my own historical trajectory, I can see that there was a clear identity to historical methodology and perspectives. But the study of religions is is too multifarious, and I think the students come into, into their undergraduate degrees not really knowing what the model or the method is. Mm -hmm. And we tend to bifurcate between uh, highly academic uh, social sciences models and more historical narrative descriptive models. And we still haven't got that middle ground identity for ourselves or even to project to the outer world. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem for us or has been a problem for us. Mm. And then, yeah, and, and I'll often find, particularly, let's say, within the context of, in the UK, we're 
within a subject grouping theology and religious studies. Yes. That <laughs> and and so some of the students who are taking the religious studies courses are maybe doing theology degrees and it, it, it it's that sort of what can you say, what can't you say, what what yes. framework are you working within can be Yes, it's it's has been really problematic in the UK context because the, uh, I mean, we have to talk about power in universities and history in universities and the context of the growth of the study of religions. It grows out of theology departments. The networks of the theology departments have got a historical gravitas that we've not been able to achieve. But we want to separate ourselves from that theological discourse. But unfortunately, uh, particularly in the UK context, again, we're also fighting this growth in a particular model of studying religions from a philosophy and ethics perspective. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of work in the last year working with A-level organisations, trying to define their criteria and descriptors for AS level and A-level that mediate between a philosophy and ethics, which is where there's a great deal of interest, mm-hmm. and a kind of theological study of particular sections of the Bible or theologians, and a study of religions perspective which I perceive to be more relativist, to be more, uh, it is more descriptive and a narrative, less normative. Mm-hmm. Both the philosophy and ethics perspective and the theological perspective tend to assume a normative final truth. Mm. And most scholars of religion want to have the most accurate description, but they don't have this underlying or overlying objective of the normative solution. Mm. <laughs> Um, as a sort of final um, challenge uh, and then I'll maybe ask you about what opportunities because we don't want to paint a a, a, a sort of pessimistic picture but um, you've written this chapter in in David and I's Yes, upcoming book on, on the uh, the world religions paradigm the problem of the the, the textbook in in so maybe yes I'll explain a little bit about that Uh, Problem. So the, the the first module of the first course that I designed and taught was called an introduction to study of world religions back in 2000. But even back then, I wanted to problematise this category. Mm. Uh, I wasn't as sophisticated in my understanding of why that category needed to be problematised. But I wanted to show the students that the way that we construct these categorizations moulds and shapes the phenomena that are out there. Mm-hmm. And the world religions paradigm, I think actually we need, we need to recognise how useful it was. Mm-hmm. One of the things it did is it tried to balance out uh, a strictly hierarchical Christian history where there was some model of uh, a development of religions from uh, polytheist religions to monotheist religions to the most rational version. And this was the standard model I was a secondary teacher for 10 years, mm-hmm. and I used to teach RS from year 7 to 9, and that was the standard model of the, most of those courses. Mm-hmm. So students coming to study uh, religions at universities had that implicit hierarchy in their mind. So one wanted to challenge that, and the world religions model did challenge that. Mm-hmm. It said there are lots of religions with lots of different philosophies mm-hmm. and ways of engaging with the world, and I think it balanced it out, but we're now on a, a new shift, a new paradigm of looking at the, uh, and teaching religions, mm. which challenges the way that that compartmentalises. Mm. And over, I think, uh, was it uh, Jung? No, it wasn't Jung. It was uh, Joseph Campbell was talking about Jung. And he said the problem with Jung's schemata is they tend to cookie mould things. 
And that's the problem with the World Religions Project. It's too easily cookie molds what is out there, mm-hmm. which is much more loose and diverse and creative and multiple. And that is the great thing about study of religions, that it sees that uh, or, or attempts to catch that multiplicity and diversity. Mm. Yeah, um, in, in the book, Carol Cusa uses mm. the analogy of how, you know, in chemistry, you know, we'll, we'll be taught about the simple model of the atom with the electrons going around and the nucleus yes. and whatnot. And then you, you get to, you know, from GCSE to A-level and they tell you, oh, that was all wrong. Yes. Then you get to university and they tell you, oh, that and yes. kind of the world religion is maybe one of those kind of it is. It's impossible. Yes, it, it's the standard model. In, in science, it's the standard model, and we've got now an, an M model, a multi-dimensional mm-hmm. model. That is very hard to teach, and that mm-hmm. the book that you and David have put together is is a really good way of trying to address some of those complexities of teaching. That. So I said we we're going to talk about opportunity. Okay. Uh, yes. You know, religious studies is yes, presumably it gives teachers a. a a deep insight into the world. Yes, I have never uh, failed to be surprised at why my classes, my courses, every course in the study of religions is not full to the brim with students. We're 8 billion people, 6 billion profess to be of some religion or another. Uh, there are people whose lives are entirely founded on religious beliefs, philosophies, and ethics, and that is the majority of the world. So why are people not studying it? <laughs> the opportunities for students who are interested in it is to have that worldview, is to have that global perspective, is to recognise differentiations. And we see all the time in, in, in public media, in common media, overly simplified models. What I found, actually, is following the trajectories of a lot of my students, a large number of them go into NGOs, third sector organisations, and the kind of sympathy and understanding of different religions, different religiosities, different worldviews, it really feeds into their careers and lives. Mm. So that's, for me, the major opportunity, to understand the world in a better perspective, in a wider perspective, in a more differentiated perspective. I'm sure you know that, that we will agree with you here yes. at, the, at the RSP. Um, so moving on then to, we've, we've got the shifting subject landscape, changing yes. pedagogical context, we've got institutional pressures, yeah. there are teachers out there at higher education level mm. teaching religious studies. What's, what, what makes for, for good um, are I'm not asking you to put yes, yes. from this is Dominic yes. right, tell me. but um, you know what what makes a successful um, RS curriculum and, and the delivery in this? Yes, it's uh, well when you design because I've designed several curriculum and I've been an external examiner for uh, seven different institutions across the UK. So I look at a lot of uh, curricula. I think the best curricula are those which have a nice balance between depth, depth, and pointed detail. Mm. One of the issues for academics teaching, you know, I said before that they're particularly interested in their modules, they want the depth, they want the the absolute detail. But to a certain extent, we're teaching a lot of students who are not going going to go into academia. Mm -hmm. They're going to go into a lot of other jobs from teaching to third sector, as I've mentioned. Mm -hmm. And we want to give them that breadth. What is it you want them to leave with? You want them to leave as thinking people, as self-reflective people, as people who understand how to put together rational arguments, how to consider the other, how to see their view in context with the other. Um, 
And you can do that in broad modules, which cover a wide variety of different religions, and you can do that in very detailed independent studies and dissertations. So the best mm. curricula are quite well designed, actually, in a, a reasonably hierarchical model where students have the breadth in level four the first year and move towards that intensity of study with the one-to-one relationship. Because although I talk about complexity and, and new technologies, I still think the best teaching is that one-to-one model. Mm. So when you move towards those independent studies and the dissertations where a student is engaging in their own research but actually bouncing it Mm -hmm. off someone who's got a level of skill and competence and knowledge which can can help direct them, you don't really get that. Uh, Again, you get it with your PhD, but after your PhD, we do some collegiate work. I do a lot of collegiate working with other colleagues because I like that triangulation. Mm. But that that model of having the, the teacher and taking you down to really intense areas of your own research, that's the high point of undergraduate work and research. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss the, uh, yeah. Yes, having someone, having someone who's sort of just there to, that is what they, they listen to your, yes. <laughs> yep. your rants and trouble and, and intellectual wranglings. Um, but um, are there some, and I know there's, there's the idea of like the flipped classroom and that sort of there, are there, sort of uh, things like that that are popping up in uh, I, Yes, I'm increasingly seeing that. Uh, the, one of the key drivers, and I've, I've been writing and supporting this at academic conferences and teaching and learning as well as in, in, in study of religions, that we can offer is that idea of the flipped classroom of undergraduates as researchers, uh, undergraduates producing research of a quality, which can be published, one of my colleagues at Oxford Brooks is doing a project called Every Student Published. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's much easier now because we can publish online. There's many more electronic things. But uh, I think that in the study of religions, because we have had to have this high level of self-reflection about our methodology and our discipline, we actually provide a variety of different research disciplines. I, I don't know any uh, curriculum that doesn't have a a research methods course. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at a research methods course in history or sociology, they tend to be quite bounded by the disciplinary structures. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you look at research methods courses in study of religions, they are inclusive. Mm-hmm. And so I have students doing social research and questionnaires and interviews, and I have students who are doing strictly textual, mm-hmm. historiographical pieces of research. But I found that actually studies, uh, students uh, in study of religion are really good at making those products, at, at looking for outputs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the things that I've tried to encourage. So the flipped classroom aspect is, uh, uh, I don't know any module where the whole class is a flipped classroom, yeah. but you have some input and then the students are, are, are increasingly coming to the fore with their own research yeah. and, and having that kind of self-reflective competence to know what their research methodology is and what their objective is. And they are the ones that are going to conferences and producing posters mm. and trying to publish. So I think that religious studies has been particularly strong and at the forefront of undergraduates as researchers. Mm. So you've got your, well, you've got many of your own examples, yes. but one that you've written about um, yeah. is the, the Yantra. Yes, project. the Yantra project, yes. Uh, so Oxford Brooks University, again, this is something I like to do collegiately, uh, we organise the trip we've been doing for seven years now. We take a bespoke uh, 
strictly bespoke in terms of uh, we have extended it just from study of religion to students to students across the whole of humanities, and their interests will direct the actual activities that we do, the field work, mm. the research that we do on the ground. I have a certain model and framework. Uh, I know what I want the students to do, and there are certain baseline requirements. One of the baseline requirements as a result of the two-week study trip, they will produce an academic poster, and that will go to an undergraduate research conference, and a number of them are then taken further to posters in Parliament and to the national undergraduate research, mm. uh, which is a, a good development and adds to what I was saying just now. But the Yatra project is very much the students as researchers, them leading on their topics of mm. interest. Uh, the, the ideal model is that we have a lot of front-end uh, teaching discussion sessions and the students produce a research proposal. Then we do the study trip and afterwards they continue working with myself or Tom Cosgrove or other, other uh, colleagues at Oxford Brooks to develop their academic poster. In reality, it's the same as all teaching. Frequently they change while they're in the process. Mm-hmm. But that's great and that's what I did with my PhD and you probably have as well. Mm-hmm. In the process of studying, you recognise that naturally your other interests or one aspect of your interest is going to uh, be useful. So I, the feedback that I get from that two-week trip from students is the most positive in terms of something that is life-changing for them, mm. in terms of the way that they understand cultural history and religion as part of that. Mm. Um, and this might have been me eating something around, but do they also produce products which are, are not... Just posters, I got the input, there are artworks. Yes, and, yes, yes. Yeah. So that was the minimum requirement <laughs> at the bottom level, uh, that they all have to do, produce a, a, an A3 academic poster for this particular undergraduate conference. But a lot of them, it, the, my idea is that their products are multivalent, mm. that they can be seen or read in lots of different contexts. So uh, one of the students last year produced a really nice uh, video, which is on YouTube, and it's had many, many thousands of views mm. on thresholds. And she, she she did an academic study about the notion of thresholds in Hindu culture, but also in terms of the idea of crossing doorways, which is the Yatra project. Yatra means journey or pilgrim mm-hmm. or pilgrimage. So they're kind of Yatris. So it was a self-reflective process as well. So they produced lots of products. They might be recordings. They might be actually, we've had musicians who produced music. The place that we go to is a place called Sangam, which means confluence, and it's confluence of ideas. And the original inspiration was a man called Jyoti Sahi, who is a Catholic theologian painter. So we actually do quite a lot of art activities. So some of them mm. produce paintings, uh, some of them produce extraordinary photographs. From an undergraduate research project, so not those aren't, don't all add up to their undergraduate. That's their mm-hmm. life. That's what they're they're interested in. But from undergraduate research, some of them also write papers that become an independent study or a part of a dissertation. So the the, the Yatras project is is multivalent in the sense that their products are multivalent. Mm-hmm. They can be in their life as part of any part of their undergraduate studies. Um, and so that multivalent aspect, obviously, or mm-hmm. has has great impact. In terms of you know, skills and employability and That's personal right. development, and what what are the sort of more academic argument? You know, like are, are they? Does this multivalent approach help in internal? Yes, the depth. It's uh, there are other programs in uh, the UK that have really well designed specific fieldwork study projects. Not that many, but there are a couple I can think about. Leeds University has the Community Religions Project, mm-hmm. 
which in some ways, I think it was Ursula King that set it up, was percipient in understanding the students as researchers and producing products. I mean, there are, there are programs across, the, uh, across the, the world where students actually do the research. There used to be one at the University of Virginia on new religious movements. Uh, I think that's, that's faded now. Um, so there are other um, academic programs which are developed perhaps more sophisticated for the study of religions, sophisticated, clear research projects. And the CRP is one of them uh, at uh, Community Religions Project mm-hmm. Leeds. Uh, and there's living religions at Bath Spa University, mm-hmm. where in the second year they all, they all do a placement with a particular religious organisation. And the specific skills in terms of research, research methodology and the products of an academic paper are more rigorous than, than the Yatra project. The Yatra project is a broader, has different aims and objectives. Mm. So some people that might be listening to this going, oh, well, what, that's all well and good, mm. but, you know, universities supposed to be sitting in lectures, yeah. learning, you know, critical <laughs> thinking, yes. um, and, you know, it's not about all this other personal... De- what, what, yes. The students just have to cope with it. There might be some mm. scholars who maybe position themselves more in the, the critical... Um, study of religion, you might look at this as sort of, <coughs> kind of pandering to the sort of yes. more multi-faith experiential yes. aspect. Yeah, so yes, uh, what would you say? I, <laughs> I understand that. I, yeah. I think it's a misconception uh, both of pedagogy and of uh, student body to uh, assume that the only modality of an undergraduate program, religious studies or whatever, is the particularly reified version of that, if you see what mm-hmm. I mean. Study of religions particularly, I think this is one of the great things that we offer other subject areas, is the breadth and the variety. I don't think that the actual products of our students are any less in terms of critical thinking. Once mm-hmm. they get to that higher level, the level five and level six uh, you know, second and third year research, independent studies and dissertations, I don't think the rigour of their academic study is any less mm. than uh, a philosopher who goes into a very traditional course where it's all delivered and it's this discursive process. Mm. Uh, I also think, this is part of my pedagogic philosophy, I guess, to uh, understand that while most students who come to university have a prevailing intellectual interest in the world. That is less the case now because more students are coming along. Mm-hmm. It used to be the case 30 years ago, 20 to 30% might come to university and they were particularly interested in intellectual things. But the study of religions has to recognise that the intellectual understanding of the world is only one modality. In fact, this is one of the things that we've been trying to challenge in the world religions paradigm. One of the things we try, in models which recognise some kind of... Uh, very intellectual history of, say, Hinduism and then village Hinduism. How do you include most Hindus' practice? In actual fact, the very first paper that I wrote was for a, a, a collected edition, I forget the, the name of it now, but it was called Praxis Prior to Doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at uh, New Age alternative spiritualities and I was trying to say that those, most descriptions at that point were too focused on some idea of a doctrinal structure, which is actually a model that comes from the world traditions mm-hmm. paradigm, that most religion is practised and done in multifarious ways and doesn't follow a particularly intellectualised model. And if you approach it with that model, you will miss mm-hmm. the variety. 
Yeah. So that's my response yeah. to the overly critical religion. I don't disagree with it, but it's just one modality. Teaching can be done in multifarious ways exactly. as well. Yes. And, and yeah, <coughs> the idea you do encounter from some scholars that higher education should be about certain things, that, that yes. is, that's normative yes. and that, that's narrowing. It's, it's, it's narrowing. But you, you don't forget that. I, my, the, I remember, actually, before I was an undergraduate, I read a book by Susan Stebbing called Thinking to Some Purpose. And that has influenced all my thinking in terms of the way that I teach. Try to inculcate in your students a critical self-reflection about the way that they're thinking, mm-hmm. about the way that they're constructing things. And that seems to me the apex of the academic project. Mm that you have a very clear understanding of what it is you're doing and why you're doing it. <laughs> so just as a final um, point then, uh, visions for future, you know, like yes. if you had to, well, you, you did outline <laughs> in, in your uh, discus yeah. article, you have just sort of, yeah. um, what can religious uh, studies pedagogue, yes. um, you know, if, if they had to take away like three key lessons, or three key lessons. <laughs> uh, I think uh, the collegiate, cross institutional, cross departmental, cross disciplinary work is one of the things that we've been really good at, and we need to own it. Mm-hmm. I think that historically we have perhaps tried to define a single methodology. It used there was an attempt at the beginning of the twentieth century, and even right through to the end of the twentieth century to make phenomenology the method for studying mm-hmm. religions. But that's a backwater. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the comparative study of religions is a bit of a backwater. But uh, what we can do in study of religions is really engage in the most important uh, paradigms, worldviews, and we can provide the most accurate, reflective models of those. And that's what we want our students to do. That's mm-hmm. what we want them to take into the world. So that's what in- inspires us. I'm not sure I've answered your question there, actually. You were saying you said two or three things. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what we should be aiming at. The vision for the future is very... Uh, it's in the balance. I mean, as I said right at the beginning of this interview, and in that Discus article, it's uh, the study of religions is young. Uh, a number of departments are closing down. I, I didn't mention Heathrop, which is being closed down, but of course that was supported by Jesuits, but it did have a good mm-hmm. theology and religious studies programme. But I think a large number of programmes are segueing and linking with international relations and politics and philosophy. Mm -hmm. But what we need to try and do is maintain the identity of the identities of study Uh of religions without the normative models that some of those academic programmes might try and force on us. So we've got a bit of resilience and there is a changing approach. I think there is one other historical circumstance most of senior management of universities uh, in the UK were educated during a very secularist paradigm in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and do not value the study of religions. I think that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, there might be a new group of mm. people taking over management of universities. They will, this model of consumers and is not going to change, no. but they might recognise how valuable study of religions is. And certainly A-level, there are more students taking A-level and A-level than there ever has been in England and Wales. Mm. Yeah. 
and a lot of people do not value what they think the study of religion is. Exactly, that's right. And we're saying, yeah, shoot at that. <laughs> that's nothing to do with us. <laughs> yes, that's it. Uh, so we have got, I mean, I said in those various models, we need to, what RSP is doing? We need more RSPs, I'm sorry about that. But we need what you and David are doing. We need more vision in terms of expressing ourselves into the wider world. This is what we do, actually. We're not some old theological we challenge these uh, cons- uh, constructions such as world religion paradigm and we produce students who are thinking and active and engaged and they do go and get the jobs. The employability for our undergraduate programmes is superb. Well, on that very optimistic <laughs> note, um, thank you very much, Dominic. Thank you. Uh, been wonderful it's to been speak to you. Thanks. Thanks for that interview, Chris. And thanks to Dominic, of course. And great to have uh, another committee member of the BASR to kick off the year. Yes, because the BASR have supported us right from the beginning and before before the beginning, to be honest, actually, because it was our first BASR conference um, that both of us attended um, back in September 2011, where the uh, the well, the idea had been born before, but the first interviews happened and the name was uh, decided in a in a Durham public house. I remember remember well with uh, Liam on the sidelines. Um, giving us positive affirmation. <laughs> yeah. Um, quite a few kind of announcements and news things. We, we spoke a lot last, uh, towards the end of last year, that we had, there was lots of things going on behind the scenes mm. and we're now kind of in a position to start talking about them. Yeah. One that we'll maybe talk about a bit more next week is the ascension of the North American Association for the Study of Religion to um, status of sponsor of the Religious Studies Project, but we're not going to talk too much about that this week because next week we actually have Brad Stoddard speaking with um, Russell McCutcheon and Aaron Hughes, who are the president and vice president of NASA, um, about the society and its inception and the particular um, North American context. So we'll, we'll save that chat for next week, but we're very, very happy, obviously, to welcome them on board and to... I think it's testament to to the growing um, international uh, reputation of the RSP that that we now have um, sponsors on both sides of the Atlantic. And, um, you know, long may that continue. Indeed. Um, but this week, it'll be, uh, I think it's time to announce that the Religious Studies Project is going to be entering into a relationship with Equinox Publishing and to relaunch the journal Implicit Religion with both of us being on the editorial board and myself and uh, Jack Lachlan from uh, over in Canada taking over as editors. Um, we are changing the focus of the journal uh, following uh, Edward Bailey's death uh, late last year, um, taking it in a much more critical direction. So the idea of what is implicit in when scholars talk about religion when um, we decide that one thing is religious and another thing isn't what is what are the assumptions being made here so we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at kind of marginal cases mm-hmm. problematic cases um, but this is really exciting and um, big a uh, big thanks to Janet for giving us the opportunity to do this mm. um, so we are going to be offering a special deal for our listeners um, we'll hope to have more details about that soon um, on the website, and we'll, I'm sure we'll mention it in the podcast at the time. Um, if you or your institution want to subscribe to the revamped uh, Implicit Religion, um, we'll be offering uh, a quite a big discount there. Mm. 
Uh, we've already taken over as editors. We're getting new artwork and everything else done, rebranding completely. And our first issue, myself and, and Jack, will be uh, in probably about uh, early summer. So it'll be mm. issue two of four for this year. Yeah. So this is really exciting because it's something that's been on our on our mind since we started the RSP with, you know, um, how we interact with established models of academic publishing and the, the general establishment of the academy. Um, and we had thought at various points about, oh, well, we could go down the route of starting a religious studies project journal, but we didn't want to, you know, th there are plenty of journals out there and we didn't want to, to jump in without a, a reason to. So um, due to you know, unfortunate circumstances, this opportunity presented itself and now we're in a position to sort of have an RSP journal without it being an RSP journal in the sense that we're we're working in close collaboration with the um, team and presenting the journal in association with us um, but it's still its own entity and, and that David and Jack are, are steering forward so it'll be good to have a, a a finger in that pie as it were and be able to contribute to that absolutely so i mean yeah we can give a bit of our particular sort of critical uh pedagogical approach without um you know having to reinvent the wheel entirely mm. um but also you know learn something from the process for for the rsp as well absolutely so if uh, if anybody listening has any um um, ideas for the journal going forward, be that in terms of um, an article you'd like to propose, a special issue you'd like to suggest, or um, perhaps uh, a review symposium or any of these kind of ideas, please do get in touch either with myself through uh, the editors at Religious Studies Project email or through the Implicit Religion site itself. So come back next week to hear us and um, to hear Brad Stoddard speaking with Aaron Hughes and Russell McCutcheon about Nasser. Um, we'll, we'll end this podcast as we usually do by um, encouraging you to use our Amazon links. Um, we got our first check from um, Amazon.com recently, which um, was very gratefully received um, and actually helped fund RSP presence at the American Academy of Religion this year, which is great. Um, so if you're in Canada, the US or the UK, please remember that that exists. Um, on social media, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Google Plus is still ticking along, but we think that's that's pretty dead. 2016 might see the, the end of Google Plus as a, a thing. Uh, and don't yeah, forget do, it. We, do we still have a page on MySpace? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, someone's probably created one for us. Um, and yeah, don't forget about iTunes and, and other portals. Um, you know, leave us ratings if you can. But for now, David, um, what would you like to say to our listeners? I'd just like to say thanks for listening. <laughs>